In the ongoing quest to find balance and renewed health, veterans and active military members have often been at the forefront of these conversations. We've recently partnered with Veterans for Healing to share veteran stories of what's worked for them as they've navigated the depth of trauma they experienced in combat. These stories and the information discussed are not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek your trusted physician or other qualified health provider's advice with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. For more information on today's episode, visit htcpod.com slash stories of healing. Hey, uh, Jean Jacket Club, Cal, go get oh, your... Yeah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're the first people who've approved them. Of the Jean Jacket. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the Canadian, like, tuxedo? Oh, it is. <laughs> you dressed up for us, Pat. I appreciate it. Yeah, my, my best bib and tucker. Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, who the fuck are you? Know, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I think we should have introductions here. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. We were just going to wait for you to get situated, but I'm Kala. This is Leanne. Hello. Hi. We are the co-founders of Have the Conversation Network. We were linked up with you, obviously, through Fabian when he contacted us because he liked the way that we retold people's stories and had conversations with them. So we linked together to share veteran stories of healing, and we're honored that you're here. Oh, uh, pleasure's mine. Okay, I'm going to be plugging in now. So okay. Can you hear me? We Perfectly. Sure we both read Rude Awakening, and we've been so excited to talk to you. So thank you. Oh, yes. my pleasure. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I used to do a lot of this, but uh, not so much anymore. Well, we're glad, like I said, we're glad that you're here and that you're doing it with us. So oh, yeah. your history is so impressive to me. I love how bold and tenacious you are and that you're not afraid to disrupt things. <laughs> uh, that's a quality I like. In a thing. Thank you. Yes, sir. So who is Pat today? Let's start there. Uh Pat Stogren is trying to be a retired grandfather. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Pat Stogren's a very disillusioned Canadian right now, trying to uh, set an example for uh, my grandchildren or grandchild now and people who uh, I interact with. So, uh, yeah, I think that's who I am. Has it been an adjustment to get to the man that you are currently with, with the history that you've had? It's been terrible. Life? It's been terrible. Um, totally disillusioned in Canada. Totally disillusioned by Canadians and what we like to think we stand for. Um, I think I, uh, I had a lot of fun during my career, met some brilliant people, did what I thought was my service to my country. Um, but it was, a uh, after a, a, a career of what I would say was huge sacrifices by myself and my family. Now, granted, I say I loved it. I stayed in the military because I was enjoying it, but in retrospect, huge toll for my family. And, uh, you know, the pandemic to me is kind of the, the crowning moment in, uh, uh, a series of failures of our government that uh, came to my consciousness from 
my experience, which was the high water mark of my career when I commanded troops in Afghanistan, thinking we were doing something great for humankind. And uh, we did nothing. We butchered thousands of Canadians. And uh, the people of Kandahar uh, are going to suffer big time now and especially the interpreters we worked with. So uh, yeah, am I in a bad place right now? That's why I'm smoking pot and uh, taking therapy. Yeah, well, doing the right things to get yourself out of it. Well, you know, you gotta pick your battles and uh, the pandemic has demonstrated to me that, because I, for 10 years now, I've been developing this concept I call leaderology. I was going to get into podcasting. I did the leaderology lab, which was, I, I wanted to try and get interaction and I was feeling around at it, but, uh, uh, you know, like just, just to kind of build a scenario, uh, as you probably read in my history, um, I was in an enclave in Bosnia called Grajda uh, as a, an armed military observer while the Serbs were laying siege to it. So today I see the people of Gaza, in the same situation that we were in last year, or that I was in with the people of the city of Garage in Bosnia. And in those days, I'll tell you this anecdote, uh, so proud to be a peacekeeper, uh, so proud to be fighting for peace as an, uh, as an ideal. Um, I was the uh, a senior in our military observer in the pocket. And I really believed in what Canada stood for in those times. And it's ironic because I was a witness to the first NATO fighter aircraft that was dropped by hostile fire. That took place. NATO actually saved the day because they were embarrassed by losing a British Sea Harrier to serve fire that uh, they delivered an ultimatum that ultimately the Serbs adhered to. But I was there to witness NATO's first uh, hostile act and the retribution for it. And then I was part of NATO's charge into Kandahar. It's interesting that back in the day, NATO was defending Muslims. And today, we're killing Muslims. We're part of the problem. So uh, what I thought was uh, a huge step for Canada in 2002 to step into that great game and do it in a Canadian way. I, I was so proud to be a part of it, but uh, you know, we had uh, a string of politicians who would say uh, Canadians don't cut and run and a whole bunch of young people believed them and were butchered. And we lost the war in Afghanistan. So all these generals now in this fuck fest, they call national defense headquarters. Uh, they were the planners. They were the architects, like the minister of a defeat for Canadians. So when I was in the military, I was a vocal opponent to the way we were conducting operations. And I actually saw my opportunity to leave gracefully uh, by becoming the veterans ombudsman because the Canadian forces was dysfunctional, uh, just following the American lead. Uh, catering to political imperatives of the government of the day. So I bowed out professionally and walked over to Veteran Affairs to be the ombudsman. And basically, the minister gave me carte blanche. He just said, you have the moral authority to do whatever you have to to help veterans. So I did. 
and I found out that our government is knowingly cheating veterans. And we found out recently that they've been withholding money knowingly for over 10 years from some people. They're knowingly cheating and robbing your children who went over to Afghanistan to have their lives destroyed. And so I had a three-year term in it. And when it was clear that I was supposed to just be marking time, I decided to go on a revolution, my own revolution, and take on the Canadian government. And, You're a uh, true badass. <laughs> no, no, I, I think there's something wrong with me mentally. Uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD from uh, Bosnia. And it's interesting that uh, the only reason the garage uh, crisis was abated because I could hear on BBC World Service that uh, the, uh, the UN and General Sir Michael Rose were denying that there was a crisis in Garajda. Garajda's calm, they would say. While I'm watching these people being butchered in the street from, uh, from direct fire tanks and artillery. Um, at the time, I was fucked up because of the betrayal. Because of yeah. the betrayal within uh, Canada. I, my member of parliament was Chuck Strahl. I marched myself in to see him. Uh, he was a reform partyist at the time. And when I came back and I said, you know, Canada's at war and we're losing because of the UN. Like, why don't we as a nation embrace this? Because we could really change it. I've never talked to a stupider man than Chuck Strahl, except for perhaps Greg Thompson, the minister of the day. Um, he knew nothing about world affairs. Uh, and those are the kind of leaders we hire to do very complex, very volatile and dangerous things on our behalf. So I go over to Veteran Affairs as the ombudsman and see that the generals wouldn't even go to bat for these troops who were being butchered in Afghanistan. I was gobsmacked. You know, I, I thought that as an officer, my chances of being wounded or killed by hostile fire were slim to none, especially as a battalion commander, because that would mean they'd have to get through a thousand gunfighters before they got to me. I, I was untouchable, so I felt the moral obligation to put my career on the line. It's the least I could do. See, and I'm starting to get passionate there because I think our government betrayed our troops with the Mefloquine fiasco uh, time and time again. They've betrayed our troops. Uh, and notwithstanding the J John Vance fiasco, I couldn't believe that Canadians couldn't see that institution is absolutely bankrupt. Uh, that veteran affairs was dysfunctional. But then it got worse because remember, we had the First Nations barricades just prior to the pandemic. And I, as veterans ombudsman, because many of the veterans being cheated were First Nations, I found out just how badly we treat First Nation people and Métis and, uh, and the Inuit. I was disgusted by it. So it was one failure after another that I was facing. It completely right. demoralizing. When the pandemic came, I had the leaderology lab and I said, finally, this is going to <laughs> kick enough Canadians in the ass to say enough is enough. And no, the herd is too flippin' stupid. We are we we the RCMP don't get their man anymore. Health Canada has killed all sorts of Canadians needlessly. And let me expound on this because in my military training, I was well versed in nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons. And I'm recorded on my podcast from the early stages of this pandemic saying, this is stupid. 
we've got to close the borders. We've got to treat this like a military operation if we're going to save lives. Yeah. And not only did our civilian leadership fail us, but General Rick Hillier was part of the team here in Ontario. And it was a joke. So that's where I am today. And I try to salvage what dignity I can from my career because uh, I, I only did proud things. And uh, I'm, I'm proud that I fell on my sword for the troops. And uh, I've never asked any other Canadian to be a whistleblower because guaranteed you're going to fail. You cannot bet against the house and expect to win. So all of these idiots in politics, these cults, as I call them, just like the military cult, like anybody that blindly follows the leader and can't look outside the box and say, hey, we're failing the people of Canada, then they're in a cult. They're blindly obedient to the leader of that organization for whatever reason. And that's kind of been my message. I've pulled back now. Uh, I, what I want to do is uh, be a role model for my grandson, and I hope to impart him with some of my wisdom that I learned the hard way. Um, yeah. I, I'm very lucky. I've got a strong family. My wife was a residential sergeant major throughout my career, and she let me have 30 years of outstanding self-actualization being a soldier, uh, only to be let down at the end. Uh, but thankfully, my family's still together, and... Uh, uh, thankfully, because of my notoriety, uh, Veteran Affairs looks after me. I almost feel guilty um, right. because I know there are some very hard cases who, you know, even paperwork. To me, paperwork, I abhor paperwork now. Uh, the, these things that just came naturally in the military. And uh, I just, maybe it's the connection to the government that, you know, my taxes and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I... I I don't feel sorry for myself because I have the strong family, but I, I empathize first person singular with the troops who are having a rough time. So how do you channel all of that disappointment and frustration that you've, you've been through and are living with now? How do you sit with that, but still heal past it and hope for a better future for these veterans? Um, <laughs> that's the gajillion dollar question <laughs> no really I don't know I, I haven't mastered it yet I'm on a path uh, uh, my initial path was through booze and anger yeah. and uh, and I mean anger anger like it was no anger management it was rage um, and uh, uh, overuse of alcohol I always thought I was a happy drunk but that's just because I didn't remember what I was like when I was drunk. I, I thought blackouts meant you passed out and I was always proud I could hold my liquor. What I didn't realize is a blackout is you didn't remember punching so-and-so or you didn't remember getting punched by so-and-so or you know all the aberrant things that happened to so many of our troops. Um, yeah. And I, I talk about it not because I'm particularly proud of it but because it's a reality. And uh, um, I only discovered uh well, I shouldn't say I only discovered. I, I was diagnosed with PTSD in uh, after my tour in Bosnia. And uh, there was such a stigma applied to it that I told my... Now, I was a major uh, at the time and, you know, a little bit headstrong. And I told my doctor if they put PTSD on the paper, they'd never see me again. And uh, um, the reason why I, I got 
veteran affairs to respond is I had a, an injury in uh, Bosnia that I had, I've got chronic back pains. So my wife knew that we were coming to this dreaded lump something and uh, told me to apply for my back while there was still a pension. And, uh, and, you know, being a simple soldier, I put it off because soldiers don't want to think about that. And I keep emphasizing that connection because a lot of soldiers lost out. I didn't because of the strength of my wife. She kept badgering me to put in a claim before 2004. Mm -hmm. They denied my claim for my back, but they said, hey, we looked through your medical file and you got PTSD, my friend. So they awarded me for my PTSD, uh, which is, I just find that ironic that they kind of were proactive with my file, which to me proves that they can, could be. if the they can do minister. it, yeah. But while at the same time, saying no to your, your claim for your back though, that's not all good news. I just came back from physio this morning. <laughs> my back, <laughs> uh, and, and thankfully the pot, like I stumbled onto the uh, efficacy of, of marijuana because I was veterans ombudsman and I was meeting troops and parents who said pot saved my son's life. Yeah. Uh, just that bold face. One doctor whose son had served in Afghanistan who uh, uh, started prescribing cannabis because it was such a miracle cure for his son for, uh, with his battle injuries. So uh, pretty beautiful. Oh, uh, so I start, I tried it and I liked it and it got me off my uh, dependency for alcohol um it uh it allowed me the mental space to think you know to just at that time between stimulus and response i was able to think a little bit um yeah. not, not only when i was under the influence but the side effect of that is what's so important and you know this is where uh i met fabian henry he reached out to me interestingly and uh I had heard of the legend of, of Fabian Henry and his miracle. <laughs> it's a good cure. way to explain him. Like Bigfoot. <laughs> oh. He's out there somewhere. <laughs> no, and, and he's so genuine, you know, like I, I've had tons, I've had thousands of people come to me with what they're going to do for veterans and can I help them and all that. And Fabian never asked me for my help. And, uh, and I witnessed the people that he was helping with his preaching about cannabis and his four pillars. And uh, I, I was kind of living that in parallel. I was doing my own kind of experimentation, but. Uh, Can we hear about that, Pat? Oh, yeah. Uh, where I'm at now are the struggles that I had. Uh, well, I, just, sorry, you're, you said that you were in tandem kind of discovering your own pillars to, for what helped you. What did that look like for you? Um, what did that look like for me? Uh, I, I, what I did was I retrenched on my family and because uh, I had a strong family and I knew I had to be there for them and I knew I couldn't help them. And so for the first years, I was off public speaking. I was at political rallies trying to, but my my solid base was my family and, and uh uh, my kids were at a time where they were just starting off in their careers, and I knew I had to be here for them. My son was just going through university and getting into the workforce, and I uh, had really strange working hours, so I took it upon myself to uh, be duty driver kind of thing, and, and you know, it was my loyalty kind of kicking in. Uh, I was loyal to the country. Country let me down. Uh, 
it was my family. And again, a lot of soldiers don't have that, not because their families don't love them, but right. because their families can't re- relate, can't, you know, click. Um, so, uh, no, I, my healing started uh, despite my injuries to soldier on because there's still a fight and that's with the family. And uh, I was operating very much on remote control, lots of alcohol, um, uh, drinking with the, the vets and commiserating and, and things like that. And then uh, was introduced to marijuana. And what that does is it gives you, it, uh, it, it gives you the breathing space. Um, I, I, I've studied the science of it. I, n- nothing like, uh, like Fabian, but I, I've certainly talked at length with him about the science. I'm intrigued by that. I got into through my, my uh, leaderology, by the way, was uh, my theory on why leadership fails people. People have write, written bags about leadership and we all, you know, we're experts in leadership. Then tell me something. Uh, why is it that we failed our kids? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm about to join the old brigade at RMC. So in, I think in 2025, we go through this great ceremony at RMC and, and march through the gates and all this. And so we're starting to plan that now, or they are. And I joined the group and they started talking about policy on the on the the chat thing so i came up and i said guys you know i thought i was at a leadership academy when i went to the military college and i said uh we are the first generation now whose uh offspring don't have the hope that we had for a prosperous future you know we're the first ones and how can we be proud of the leadership legacy of our generation? So that was the premise that I used to develop leaderology. There are all sorts of psychological and neurological reasons why society is exploding. And it does it every hundred or so years. And we're into that right now. And we should be trying to come out of it better off. Uh, that's the leaderology idea, because a leader makes sacrifices for the long term. And there's reasons why humans don't do that. You know, humans, empathy is a line of, don't let anybody tell you any differently. Empathy is a line of sight quality. So when your politician talks about whatever resonates in your heart as if he or she is the first, you know, person that that has resonated with you, no, there's no empathy there. People have to understand that. Empathy is the soldiers around you, your trench mate. Uh, And it's the same thing on civil society. I have become a proponent of community. Turn your community into a kingdom because that will protect you from pandemics and epidemics, you know, if you know who belongs in your community. Uh, and we got to get back to family. I call them now on meteorology family command teams. The, the husband and wife are like commanding officer and regimental sergeant major, you know, and their roles flip. I always referred to my wife as a regimental sergeant major because when I came home throughout my career, I had my tasks, you know, because I didn't want to disrupt right. the family unit that, that she built. And thankfully, that worked for us because when I started having my problems, the family carried me. Hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that really is very full circle. Uh, you talked about the red tape. Um, that veterans come up against and, and how a lot of them abandon their claims out of sheer frustration with the process and how you kind of fell into that too and that your wife really picked up where you couldn't in, in regards to that. Can you talk about some of the red tape that you came up against um, in your career as ombudsman? Oh, well, you know, uh, my, my own experience when the, uh, 
we first made the claim back 20 years ago, I was getting into my uniform ready to go to work or coming home and, and receive this brick of documents from Veteran Affairs with the first two pages of reference and read the first paragraph pursuant to reference A through whatever and all this. And I said, that's bullshit. We've been denied. I threw it on, you know, can't be bothered. I got a war to fight. And my wife went through all the references. My wife went and cross-checked it all. And, you know, not every wife has the capacity to do that. They're either, you know, got four kids or uh, uh, five jobs or, or whatever. Um, so that's where it started. You know, my wife said, no, no, according to this reference, all you have to do is say, and I don't even remember the process. Yeah. Uh, but she stayed, you know, I, I retired. I'd never paid rent. I'd never cooked a meal. I knew nothing about final finances. I had to learn my first Christmas after retirement, my daughter got me a cookbook. Because I was all of a sudden, you know, no longer just a trooper doing what the res regimental sergeant major was telling me. I was becoming the residential sergeant major and I had to cook and I was doing the cleaning and I had to learn that from scratch because I'd been completely like the books you see behind me here. This is, you know, I studied, I wanted to go to war. I was going to win Canada's next war. That's why I was so disappointed when I saw we were going to fail. We were, yeah. we were going to have our asses handed to us by our enemies and i i wrote this uh paper uh called a primer on the insurgency in kandahar or something and i handed it to minister thompson i said well i'm a civilian now you know and this is how i feel about the war i thought maybe he'd discuss it with his colleagues and go back to dnd and say what the fuck are you guys doing over there you know it sounds like a mess because it was a mess we were just following the americans the americans had a big report remember they they uh uh Snowden leaks or it was that other uh, yeah. soldier who who leaked the fact that the generals in Afghanistan didn't know what the fuck they were doing right. well I'll tell you something our generals were following them you know Wayne Eyre is a graduate of American War College Wayne Eyre is a grad uh, served in I think one armored corps the chief of defense staff we're very American except we're not in a winning war well I guess the Americans aren't either but you know, when you when you don't have the support, when you don't have the command and control, you can't get anywhere. And we have no command and control, starting right from our prime ministers through to, uh, and it's all there. Uh, okay, there's my first rant where I have no idea where it came from or where it was. <laughs> red tape, red tape. Red tape, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the red tape was a big bugbear of mine as the veterans ombudsman and... Uh, I'll say something like the frontline troops in veteran affairs, they knew they were failing their clients. You know, they, they would, I, I, I had as many town halls with employees in veteran affairs as I did with uh, veterans. And I got to say for the last year, I was on the ro road every week. So I was talking to veteran affairs across the country and I would always get pulled into a cubicle quietly saying, you know, I've been here 30 years. And it's disgraceful how we're failing our Afghanistan people. Like I, th th I wasn't creating this. And then when when uh, I was called before the Senate and and the disgraced Pamela Wallen said to me, you know, we we know you'd like to throw money all over the place, but I just can't believe that we would treat our veterans the way you're treating them, or that you say we're treating them. And I looked at General Delaire and I said, so why are you asking me? Have the people in here who are yeah. treating? They're willing to talk. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, that's not the game they play. It's like the sexual misconduct uh, revelations that are happening now. You know, there was a credible... Uh, I was shocked by the Deschamps uh, inquiry. Um, there, there was a credible inquiry, and uh, I, I think she was a chief justice, Madame Deschamps, came and, and said that it's a misogynistic mess in the military. I was thinking, that's not my military, is it? Wow. I knew John Vance, though. And every general knew Vance was not an ethical man. Um, they knew, uh, uh, just as much as I did, because I never got my star. I was a colonel, and I knew John Vance. They're all a party to it. But when, when the chain of command failed the victims, here was this report that, as I said, it was a shock to me, but I would have implemented it. And I... I think I was still doing my, I was doing my podcast. I mocked Op Honor as a farce coming from John Vance. I was public with it. Check my Facebook feed. You, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to pick these things out. Like the Mercedes Stevenson cub reporter that broke this story. They've been sitting on the story for five years. Andrew Coyne and all those players, they're part of the system. They're, they're playing us. Um, so when your command and control is broken, the rest of the organization will, you know, will react accordingly. Now, so take it to the political level. And now I've seen, you know, our, our RCMP don't get their man. I've gone down the list. Health Canada has failed every Canadian. And do you think we're going to have a Royal Commission like they're having in the UK? Uh, they, uh, do you think we're going to have a public inquiry into what went wrong in this pandemic? Because I can say right from the get-go. But now you're sitting there shaking your head, young lady. <laughs> Shame on you, because it's your fault. It's, it's the, No, no, we've got to stop. Uh, no, if I could get uh, people to become violent, I would over this, because there are people in our society who are dying today in, in the First Nations. And for you to say... Shake your head. This is why I say empathy is a line of sight thing. You know, I know you feel terrible. I feel terrible, but you're not as empathetic to the plight of our First Nations as you would be to your own child. You're not as. I, I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. And and you know, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm shaking my head because I'm just in disbelief. You know what you have to do? All you have to do is call bullshit with your politicians. Like, Absolutely. It's not. But what what do we do? We jump to the seal bait. We retrench on one side or the other. Oh, you know, one side wants to deploy the army to borders. If you can't defend our borders, what good's an army? Do you have any idea what that entails? No, but this is what the politicians want us to do. A eh? jump at that seal bait. We should instead be saying to our politicians, fix it. Yeah. If you haven't fixed it in four years, you're being replaced. So the reason why I'm coming on to you, not so much to, to poison our relationship, but Not it's the people, it's the people listening to the podcast, you know, mm -hmm. who, who are out of harm's way right now and they can really think about it. No, you've got to start demanding results from your politicians. Um, whether it's in education, any of these things. Oh, I was gonna <laughs> edit this one in. I want to get back to the the uh what government does. Okay. Sure. Op honor was a failure in the military. What did they do? They bring in the big guns. Louise Arbour is going to tell us what's wrong now. They're not going to fix it. 
Louise Arbour is going to come out with a study about the sexual misconduct in the military. She's probably going to have her recommendations, and it'll probably follow the exact same course that the Deschamps Commission came onto it. So it's incumbent on us, civilians, not the military people who have to follow the orders, but you with children and everybody else to just call bullshit and, and hold them accountable for results, just like an employer would hold an employee accountable for results. Now, there's a novel concept. Mm-hmm, like, right. you know, you didn't finish your report this month. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll do a study and I'll get back to you next month on how I could do it better. No, <laughs> you know, you deliver. You'd be fired. Yeah, essentially they work for us, but it's been flipped to think that it's the other way around. So now our entire society has been harmed by the pandemic. And I'm hoping, now I, I'm I'm actually sucking in my horns. This is what... This is the way I lived for 10 years when I was juiced on alcohol and, and good for the fight. I've closed down my meteorology and, you know, my focus is on my grandson to be a critical thinker and not, mm. you know, uh, I watch MSNBC, so I argue with the people who watch Fox. That's all it is. And But, you know, sorry, I'm picking on you because you're in front of me. Go uh, ahead. But Part speaking of you know, you laugh it off, but our... Mercedes Stevenson knew for five years of John Vance and his finagling. Everything that broke, but there's some reason why they reached out and had it broken the way they did. Uh, I don't know what the game is. Oh, it's purely. Yeah, It's purely. My son was a young liberal and uh, and passionately, he works in government now, so he's, he's no longer a part of the cult. But he can spot the political shenanigans, you know, the floating something on Friday because this is what they're going to do next week. Like, this is the game they play. It's got nothing to do with policy. These people, political scientists, they're not trained in strategy and and economics. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've seen it in Ontario with Doug Ford. Like, he's, he's overwhelmed by the decision-making. And there's another point, you know, I've fired young captains out of the military who had more integrity and were subjected to to a very rigorous decision-making regime in the military, Uh, you know, under the gun of superiors all the time to deliver. And uh, it amazes me when I see them talking on Facebook, cutting all this slack for our theoretical commander-in-chief for the buffoonery that's killing Canadians. Mm. So you you see why I I need cannabis? (laughs) I feel like I need cannabis right I was going to say, I have to drink some right now, too. <laughs> well, but that's what I love, these conversations and what we're doing here, is because I think the real problem is awareness. It's not just one civilian keeping the government officials accountable. It's you got to get a collective group of people to do it, because even as ombudsman, you were holding people accountable and running into so oh. many issues, and that's a high position. So one civilian just on Facebook saying, this is bullshit isn't going to do anything and it's, and it's that's a awareness problem yeah and, and let me just give you another peek inside the kimono here of government because i went to the minister and the deputy minister and i said look i don't want to write reports you know okay where my successor my successor Guy Perron, this is true i wanted to fire him uh and i was told to put him on a special project because the likelihood of firing he was my director of investigations he was my successor as they they I had him sidelined for the last year of my uh, my job as ombudsman because he was not trustworthy, uh, not critical at all. 
I was getting better work from his, his staff by working direct with them. And uh, they hired him for nine years after me, knowing full well that I had him on career, uh, career shortcomings. Uh, and, you know, I'd love him to challenge me in a court on this. I swear in a stack of Bibles, he was on the way out. Uh, that's what government wants. And well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make people more militant, quite honestly. Don't play by the rules. Like the only rule should be fix it or we'll get somebody else. So speaking of that, like what, what if anything, has changed since you have left as ombudsman? Nothing. Really? Not a thing. It's gotten worse. Mm. Um, you know, Lionel Desmond, uh, they had an inquiry in Nova Scotia. We didn't have a federal inquiry into it that I know because we don't do that. But Lionel Desmond is that young soldier in Nova Scotia who killed himself and his family, his young family. Um, no, it's still happening. The casualties are still facing the same problems despite the fact that the smiling general Walt Matinchuk you know as Peter McKay called him is everybody's favorite general um yeah he, he changed some things around the edges but uh in terms of funding or legislation nothing has really changed well that's difficult for me to say because I saw funding slipping when I was studying it all the time but so my my level of granularity in that is uh, less, uh, but I can say from the frustrations that I'm, uh, you know, the correspondence that I receive uh, on social media and such, I don't think much has changed. Uh, I, I think they've learned how to deal with the problems of the past, but they haven't fixed, you know, they, they've, they've smoothed the waters, if you will. Constantly trying to get ahead of it, just to yeah. be ahead of it, not to fix it, well, just to fix the fallout. The, the fix would be very easy with a different attitude. Um, the, the attitude of the senior bureaucracy is they would far sooner disadvantage all the legitimate casualties in order to prevent the, uh, the shucksters, you know, the people who use the system. Uh, and I would submit very small percentage of them, but let them through to uh, make it easy for the, the, you know, the Lionel Desmonds who's at the end of the rope and may kill their entire family. Uh, you know, thankfully in Canada, we don't have the same uh, uh, sort of tendency to resort to grand violence that uh, we see in the United States. But uh, I would say that uh, that doesn't diminish the suffering of the individuals. It's, it's more, I think, a, a statement of the kind of culture we have yeah. than it is about the kind of torture uh, our casualties are going through. And, you know, at, at this point in my healing i don't like to talk just about soldiers anymore uh i would sooner you know i look at the uh the whole thing with racism oh it's alive and well in canada you know go back through our history the residential schools is topical now and you know no empathy there lots of stated empathy but unless you actually lived it and you're crying it it doesn't hurt us the way those people are being harmed but a leader has to feel it you know, a leader has to understand the torture. That's why I say uh, Wayne Eyre, when uh, I know both uh, General Eyre and General Peter Dodd, they both worked for me in a, in a previous life and both stalwart professionals, I got to say. Uh, and Wayne Eyre is just the man you need to clean up the sexual misconduct in the military. But Wayne made a fatal error, I think, that attacked his moral credibility when he supported Peter Daw before he relieved him of command. Uh, 
he harmed a whole bunch of, of uh, sexual misconduct victims in the military who, uh, you know, weren't involved in the Peter Daw thing, but they saw very much the fact that Wayne Eyre would express his continued confidence in Peter Daw's decision-making. Uh, I know from the correspondence I've had with, with female veterans who are active uh, as advocates for the, you know, getting rid of sexual misconduct, they felt betrayed. And as I said to you, that, that's the heart of my PTSD is that feeling of betrayal. Um, so it's, it, it, a leader has to have the kind of empathy that a normal person would only get first person singular with an interaction. You've got to be able to put your, your heart in the hands of that person who's suffering. So I talk about troops, but uh, First Nations people are every bit as disadvantaged, uh, victims of sexual misconduct. Uh, the list goes on in Canada, and we keep just kicking the can that further down the road. But let me close this present rant on one thing that, you know, my family's not going to suffer. I was smart enough and fortunate enough as a white person to be able to provide for my grandson's education. Uh, I challenge anybody who allows these idiot politicians to dismantle their education system. Like, I don't care how tough you had it in school and how much you hate teachers. You should be demanding Cadillac education. And it's the same thing with our health services. All of these critical things. These are the heroes of our country. I'd even put them as bigger heroes than the military, quite honestly. Because this is their home. You know, we go overseas to fight the bad guys. And then we come back and get medals. And we expect to be respected. Uh, man, I couldn't imagine being a healthcare worker in this environment. But, you know, God it's bless them all. perspective, yeah. So, yeah, it's more than just troops. To me, we're talking about veteran affairs and healing. To me, that was the learning experience. And uh, now I'm, to me, it's about government versus the people. And we've got to stop picking our party because the parties are in it for themselves. They're a lobby group that have gained internal access. We've got to start sticking up for all of the, the disadvantaged people, you know, like I said, I'm a male. So when you say that, person. what are some active steps to do that as a civilian that you see that people could do? Because that's kind of a broad statement. Can you help me understand that just a little bit of what you would like to see? What I'd like to see um, is that we as a, as a society start confronting politicians. You know, all of these issues that confront politicians in, in the U.S. Army War College, these are strategic level issues. And the, the War College in the States teaches that strategic lesson issues, unlike issues that we face, at the strategic level, they're very volatile. They're ambiguous, difficult to read because there's so many factors going in, into them, which lends themselves to complexity and uncertainty. And it's huge because... At the strategic level, you're looking at thousands of factors and second and third order effects of policies that you implement. If I'm losing you on this. A little bit. I'm, I'm trying to follow. Yeah. I'm well, going. yeah. So what we shouldn't, you and I shouldn't be arguing about is how to fix it. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. I'm just, you and I as Canadians, but this is what we do. My brother and I will argue he wants troops to prevent Muslim refugees from coming across the border from the states if we can't protect our borders what good are we and he has no idea of like i can in a heartbeat tell you the military complications and the cost to canadian society to 
to employ our military to defend the borders. But I don't expect my brother to understand that. I see. We pay our politicians big bucks not to stand out there and throw seal bait out like uh, Mario Como or whatever this, uh, sorry, the, the yeah. new fringe right-wing party that came out and they were going to deploy the military. That, that, that's seal bait. That's to make people jump. And we fight over it. You know, we fight amongst ourselves and call each other names, not knowing anything about the complexities of the issue, let alone the solution that they're telling us they're going to implement. Because it it ain't going to happen. I'll tell you, any government that says they're going to stop refugees by deploying the army has not looked at the problem. But they'll do that. And then we'll fight each other. What we have to start saying to our politicians, you, me, and everyone is, fix the refugee problem. You know, and or else educate us instead of the propaganda of lies and half-truths, mistruths, uh, educate us in why it's not a problem. But they don't because it's the political imperative. It's the perception rather than the reality that's important. But it's the reality that's going to bite us in the ass 10 years from now that I worry about for my grandson. My kids have very well-paying jobs now and... So my my wife and I can enjoy being a grandparent, but my grandson is going to have, like, just with this pandemic, we don't know if the economy is going to be anything like it is today in five years. You know, the Great Reset, whatever they're talking about. But what we've got to do is just start demanding that politicians are accountable for results in Canada. Uh, and we could go back, you know, I've I've gone back as far as the Second World War to see how we have been disadvantaged starting with the Avro we would have been with the Avro Canada would have been a world leader in aviation but for some reason our government decreed that we would destroy every physical piece of it and all of the knowledge associated with it and all of the scientists went to the United States you look at our economy right now we went from the breadbasket of the world One of the warehouses at Auschwitz was actually called Canada House because we were considered the land of riches. And that's where they had put the riches that they stole from their victims. Canada was a land of opportunity. I would suggest to you that we're not, that my grandson doesn't face the same opportunities that I faced, you know, in the 60s and 70s coming out of it. And it's our fault. What are those opportunities that are missing that you're speaking of? jobs uh standards of education world status you know we don't have status we're barely a third world country in the world time was when canada had a problem like we're having with uh china right now the people they've kidnapped over there time was we'd have countries that would help us you know we were the first country to help the united states after 9-11 my unit was deployed to afghanistan we were warned by october that we were going to be going to afghanistan after september 11th so i was proud of that but you know we saw trump playing games with the USMCA and uh, or the NAFTA agreement. And don't kid yourself, we didn't come out ahead on that. Uh, we got whatever the Americans were giving us, but it's been played up by the media. And we, of course, attack each other. Where else? I think I've been talking about all of our institutions in Canada have let us down in one way or the other. You know, the, the uh, RCMP with the massacre in, uh, in Nova Scotia and police running around shooting at each other. On more of a personal note, have you been so, I guess, 
jaded by everything you've been through that you would like, what if your grandson came up to you and said, grandpa, I want to join the military. How would you feel about that? Oh, I'd be, I'd be gutted. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really gutted. upsetting. Uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dissuade him. I, I hope to, uh, the influence I want to have on my grandson is I hope to make him a critical and creative thinker. That's all like, I, you know, whatever he thinks is for himself. Uh, well, I like to think by the time he's old enough to do that, that we will have come together as Canadians and said, we expect better for this country. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing that we're at each other's throats. It's one thing that, that, uh, well, we don't have any real Canadian iconic companies per se, especially ones that could be considered a world-class. We've got a few, but I like to think that we're going to come together as a country and recognize that we've, we've uh, been resting on primary industry for too long, um, that we have some severe problems. Uh, we're never going to get ahead as a nation, I would submit to you, as long as we have this problem with the way we've treated First Nations. And uh, it's going to get worse. There's a great book by John Rawlson Saul called The Comeback. And they're, they're winning court challenges on treaties because we have robbed them blind. And uh, sadly, leaders, this is a leaderology thing. This is a well-known fact uh, that leaders are very often the narcissist among us. Um, they're... Uh, they're megalomaniacal. Like to become a leader of a country, like let's say United States, even Canada, you have to have a passion. You, you know, uh, you guys have the capability to do it, but uh, well, no, but you don't have the passion. And it, yeah, it, I don't want that responsibility. But in order for somebody to to, to lust, for, well, th there has to be a lust. There has to be a drive Absolutely. that is more important than family or whatever to get in, in power. Uh, and I've learned this through leaderology. You know, I've, I've learned about yeah. the psychosocial aspects of decision-making because I came out of the military saying, why? Like, I thought I was going insane. You know, I, now I was noted as a maverick throughout the military, mainly because I kind of knew something was wrong in the military about who we promoted. And it wasn't until I got into leaderology that I realized, yeah, a, a, a corporation is but a filter and they filter like elements to the top. So, you know, uh, Hillier had what I call the Hillier youth that he was looking after. Um, and Walt Natincha, John Vance, people knew who were in Hillier's Hillier's camp, and they all migrated to the top during the war years. And, you know, Montgomery once said that best rank to be at at the beginning of a war is colonel because they get rid of all the generals who got there bureaucratically and through suck holing. And because the country wants to win a war, they bring up the war fighters. Well, that didn't happen in our case. The system just carried on as normal. And uh, 158 young people lost their lives. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that through things like what we're doing right now, Canadians will gradually turn around and start saying to our, our, our government, we expect more from you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to ask you to, to kind of go off of that. Who are the companies or people that are doing the inclusive, innovative work that can help move this vision of holding government accountable? Who are those people? Are there people that stand out to you that are doing really good work? Oh, yeah, I, I would, uh, no. Wow. Uh, this is a leaderology thing again. 
like I'd been asked by a couple of organizations uh, to be on boards of directors and stuff like this. But uh, as you start to formalize these organizations, they start to lose their focus. Uh, you know, true patriots love, wounded warriors and stuff. Take, take a look at how they look after troops. Now, you know, they'll boast about what their accomplishments are, but that's for colored glossies. You know, these these trips, 15 veterans going to the South Pole, well, that's great and makes a lot of people feel good. I'm worried about the young kid in the basement looking at a handgun, trying to sort out the rest of his life. Um, so I look to people like there there are uh, smaller groups like Soldier On doing things for the troops. I think I would vouch for them. There are groups like Vets, Veterans Emergency Transition Service System, people that work at the, um, at the, in the food lines. Those are the ones that make the difference. In Calgary, there's back all sorts- Back to that community, yeah. Back to that community. You know, and I don't want to discredit any particular organization um, sure. because it's just that that's the life. Of an organization it becomes self-perpetuating so i i look more at the individuals um and there are some that i used to especially with leaderology many of the people i followed and corresponded with were these individuals like fabian henry you know uh, it, this is a guy that uh theoretically should it should have gone to his head you know he's he's made right. millions in the marijuana thing like a lot of his compatriots have gone to the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of people that have made bundles of money in this. Uh, Julian Fantino, who stood up as the Minister of Veteran Affairs in the House of Commons and decreed that legalizing marijuana is akin to legalizing murder and he would never allow it. Well, I was invited to his board, the board of directors that he started uh, of the pot company. Uh, uh, you know, he's right on the bandwagon. So, no, I don't... I don't messed up. Mm -hmm. I won't vouch for any organization anyone even the ones i mentioned here uh, they do do some good work and of course where they do do the good work that'll get thrown back in my face and say you know they did great work here yeah no but it's the overall uh it's yeah. it's more community it's the food lines homelessness is not a veterans issue i learned oh in my first month is the veterans ombudsman i learned about homelessness you know when the minister was standing up there calling me a liar i went to the calgary drop-in center and that uh, I think that was the name of it. It's their big homeless center there. And they had, had my first visit and they had 20 homeless veterans from all the war since I think there was a second world. I certainly met a lot of second world war homeless veterans. Uh, yeah, it's a huge problem in Canada. And I don't know how I got onto that route, but that's why I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm on uh, marijuana and even antidepressants. But, uh, well, can I ask you, if you have any words of advice or, or hope for veterans that are struggling right now. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> put me on the spot with that one. Because, you know, I can... Sorry. <laughs> no, because, uh, well, you know, should I just say get in touch with Fabian Henry? Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, no, but I, I'd be hesitant to do that because that's not everyone's cup of tea you know uh yeah i think the secret to uh success is to develop mindfulness mm. and uh, so i i meditate not religiously but not uh expertly i i do it my own way and i do it as regular as i can it might be just kind of like nod not but i i really believe in 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 meditating uh 
and marijuana helps get into that swing. Uh, I found yoga very useful. All these eclectic things. It's very interesting. I, yeah, like I, I couldn't picture you doing yoga. That, that surprises me. I like to hear that. Oh yeah. You wouldn't like to see it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I once said to, uh, to uh, Fabian, uh, you know, things like drum circles are healing people. Um, so. Well, you talked about that too in your book um, with the dogs and how people oh, won't even take that seriously Yeah, at a government know, level to get vets. Yeah. Empathy and care. Purpose. And it's huge. Now, some veterans will think that having a dog is a pet that you kick around is uh, a service dog. And, you know, well, I want my service dog kind of thing. No, no. What I believe the great and it's a mindfulness exercise, again, caring for a dog. You know, one of my sources of mindfulness has uh, aside from the courses I took. But when I go for a walk with my dog is being there. And, you know, turning it into a mindfulness exercise. Uh, And, you know, when I was a soldier, I thought this was all bullshit. And, you know, if I get too preachy about it, I'll just be dismissed as a born again or something like that. Uh, Really, the troops have to experiment and they have to find something that is, I would say, fulfilling. But again, it comes to mindfulness. You know, it's, it's about the localness it's about not thinking about worrying about the future or the past and and these are all buzzwords that meant nothing to me when i before i was a casualty and used them to heal like i i I preach about meditation to my kids eh and they roll their eyes like no no it's like i've taken up guitar here's here's a metaphor i use because like i'm i'm teaching myself finger style as a mindfulness exercise. And what I find is as you're trying to get the rhythm and, and all that, you get so into the guitar that the skills come and it, by accident, like all of a sudden I'm smoother and you hear it in the recording, but because you're so into the strings and the, and, and the wood and all that, you know, well, it becomes mindful or you sit there and sing a song. <laughs> yeah. You know, so no, it's more than that. You gotta, you gotta extend yourself. You gotta avail yourself. You gotta, uh, like, with your family. You know, uh, I was here for my family, so it, it, yeah. No, I, I think first and foremost, uh, I don't know. You're gonna have to edit the shit out of this. Uh, no, I get what you're saying. It's 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 weird. You have to get out of yourself and into just being where you're at with what you're doing yeah well you know it's the same chemicals in in your head that make you feel shitty or make you feel good and you know the limbus system you know and and it all starts everything you experience goes through your limbus system it's strained through emotions and and the reason is for survival you know this is something that goes straight to the amygdala because it's fight flight or freeze kind of thing or this is something that's happy and that metadata gets attached to it and then you got to to the memory and you got to find a way of separating the emotional perceptional metadata from the facts that you were there and uh to each his own and that's the beauty of the four pillars that uh Fabian talks about because it's really not prescriptive eh Mm-hmm. right it's it's very much up very to the broad. individual and fabian actually takes exception to my belief in the mission team self thing because he says no the mission's over now now it's about self and healing and all that but i would argue that the mission becomes one of healing mm. and the, and then next to that is the team 
Like in the military, it's mission team self in that first is the mission, then second is the army and your trench mate, and then last is your own. But no, no, your mission becomes healing. The team becomes those that you love and those people that you care about and care about you. And then the self, you know, you got to be mindful. (laughs) Yeah, your mission should you choose to accept. Yeah. And what that, it's a sense of purpose. It's like Viktor Frankl with Man's Search for Meaning. With that sense of purpose, being healing and with you reaching out, because this is what the advice that I give to veterans, build that team. Your team becomes first and foremost your psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever. But then it's positive thinking people like family, friends, Fabian uh, and his group, you know. And then you, it, it all comes back to mindfulness. Does this work for you? I, I think I'm dangerously into uh, guitar and I don't take lessons, but uh, I use, uh, I spend hours every day finger style and I can't play a song yet. I'm, it's all about perfect technique and uh, timing and all that. And to me, that's hugely therapeutic. I come out of it, like I say, not very good on guitar, but escaping in a, oh, here's another lesson I learned. There was a, uh, series on netflix called lockdown and there was there was a story there about a british guy who uh got busted in some south american country running cocaine and he was thrown into a prison and he got into yoga through (laughs) oh and he got into mindfulness and meditation and he was like they showed the conditions in these prisons and they're like uh gangs eh? they police escort to put him in with a certain group and your survival depends on living with that gang. So every night he'd get up and do yoga and meditate. And he said, they're interviewing him. And he said, I found a freedom inside this prison through meditating, through mindfulness. And I said, wow, you know, if I could get every veteran to look at that. So you, you, you yeah, you could be in a hellhole, and through mindfulness and, and I think uh, reinforcing the positive things in your life, you know, your team, because it is, it, it's the people around you that are important. Uh, and we've, we've gone away from that. Eh? We move, industrialization has called us, caused us to move away from families, to move into subdivisions where, you know, we, we process our lawns with, with uh, petrochemical products and we drive a car to work and we drive back. And like, I, I don't even know who my member, my MLA is in this, this community. We're a big we're one of many subdivisions, you know, gone is that sense of connection. My neighbors, we know really well. Uh, but, I, you know, I think it, my recommendation for my kids and certainly for my grandson is build that community. Don't chase the job. Uh, yeah. Tough to do. Got to find a balance. But uh, it's mission team self. And, and the mission changes, team changes. Right. But at the end of the day, you got to be true to yourself. Yeah. Love that. But I think that's a good place to end, Pat. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful message that you just left. I want you to go be with your people and be with your grandson and take this time to just heal, like you said, and to just be. And we wish you the best. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us. Yeah. Well, well thanks for what you guys are doing, eh? I, I love the fact that we have podcasts that ordinary people can actually have an impact. And like, not, I'm not calling you ordinary, but you know, no, people around us. Far from ordinary. (laughs) No, but this is the future. You know, if we, if we can talk to each other on means like this and spread the, the, uh, uh, the importance of community, then we'll combat globalism and, you know, be brighter future for 
our young kids. Part so. of the plan. Part of the plan. We got to just stick with it. <laughs> Airborne. Yeah. Well, good luck to you. And thank you. Like Pat. I say, I hope this works for you. Thank, thank you so you. much. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Pat. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HDC community. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Have the Combo. For information on all of our shows, guests, and more, visit htcpod.com. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Talk soon.